Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this outspoken event with Anna Funda and Mary Garden. My name is Stephen Lang, and I'll be your host this evening. Firstly, may I say thank you so much for coming out on such a bleak night, amid, uh, you know, amid what in Scotland we always used to call dreek. Uh, certain parts of the United Kingdom specialising as they do in the names for foul weather. Uh, but we're all warm and dry in here, and we have a great lineup. The format is that uh, I'm going to be having a conversation with uh, our introducing author here, Mary Garden, for about 15 minutes. And after that, we'll be inviting Anna Funda to come onto the stage. She and I will talk for about an hour, including time for questions at the end. Before we begin, I believe it's appropriate that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're gathered, the Jinnaburra people. They are the keepers of the ancient stories of this place. I'd like also to acknowledge those who continue to work for the protection and promotion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, creating a legacy for future elders and leaders. Well, our first guest, Mary Garden. Mary's a, a freelance writer with a PhD in journalism. We should call her Dr. Mary Garden, really. <laughs> no. you know, we're going to be right here. <laughs> She's the author of three books, The Serpent Rising, A Journey of Spiritual Seduction, a memoir of her years in India in the 70s where she fell under the spell of various self-appointed God-men. Indeed, one of the first books to shine the light on the danger of the guru-disciple relationship, especially for naive Westerners. Also, the poetry collection, Coming Together, A Journey Through Passion, and this very handsome new book we have here, Sundowner of the Skies, a biography of her father, a remarkable aviator who achieved fame, if not fortune, when he became the youngest and most inexperienced pilot to fly solo from England to Australia. Well, as I'm sure you all know, Mary is a resident of this fair town and an avid cyclist. She works in the family cycle business. Please put your hands together for Mary Garden. So look, firstly, Mary, congratulations on the book. It's been a bit of a journey for you getting this book uh, to this stage, hasn't it? Did you always want to write a biography of your father, Oscar Garden? No, I think I was um, forced into it in a way. <clears throat> I mean, there was talk about someone writing a book about my father when he was still alive, but um, then he died in 1997, so we thought, you know, that it's too late. And in 2005, I thought there was very little information available. There were a few newspaper articles. There were some chapters in books, but he left no diaries, no letters. It was just the beginning of the internet. And I thought... And I was just at the beginning of, you know, being a freelance journalist, and I thought I might be able to write an article on my father and maybe make some more money than I ever, ever got from him and from my whole life, because he was <laughs> such a miser, and I did. So um, I, looked, I looked at the articles that had been written, and there weren't that many over the years. He did turn his back on the world of aviation in 1947. But, and I thought, all they have done is just tried to cover his whole life. And even though I hadn't done any training to become a freelance journalist, I thought, you need to have a focus. So I thought... I think I'll just drill into this flight that he did in 1930. And it, even though I didn't realise it was that significant, when I really dug into it, I thought, oh, my God, this is absolutely amazing. So I did this 
4,000 word feature article. It was about the fifth article I'd ever written. And it got published in the centre pages of the Australian Financial Review, which was absolutely amazing. And I got $2,500. It was extraordinary. <laughs> and um, <laughs> that, and I, during the time when I was putting it together, I contacted Dick Smith because I was trying to track the um, route that he came on. And he was the very first... There were only, at the time when he left England, there were only two aviators that had managed to make that long um, flight. It was the most hazardous in the world from England to... They all went to Darwin, so there had been Bert Hinkler and then Amy Johnson in April. And Kingsford Smith had set out on a week before my father, and they were all about breaking records and being the first. But that wasn't my father, you know. He was only... Just turned 27... And he had just got his solo licence um, to fly a gypsy moth. And, and he was born in Scotland. And he thought, I'm not going to waste all that money to get a commercial licence. It would be much cheaper if I bought a second-hand plane and flew it out to Australia. So he actually <coughs> had very... He didn't have that much money left. He went into um, the department store Selfridges. I don't know whether some of you will know that. From 1927 to 1936, it actually had an aviation department. And, <laughs> and he trotted in there, and for £450, he traded in his Chrysler car for £50, and he bought this second-hand plane that had once belonged to the owner, the self... I can't remember what his name is now, Gordon Selfridge, who had actually crashed the plane, so it was, you know, a second-hand repaired plane. And... He didn't, and he had very little money left. He hand drew his maps, got a propeller which he strapped on the side, and luckily he had been working in garages, so he had a contact with Vacuum Oil, who actually put petrol down at, ver at the various stops that he planned to stop on the way, and he didn't want to tell anyone he was leaving because he only had 38 hours flying experience and three months. Whereas Kingsford Smith had, what, 10 years, or Bert Henkler, 15 years. And they all had huge support, lots of financial backing. And my father didn't want to tell anyone he was going because he didn't want to be talked out of it. So he had one person to see him off when he left on the 17th of October, 1930. And when his flying instructor found out, he said, he hasn't got a hope in hell, you know, he's <laughs> mad. <laughs> and... It's an incredible story, isn't it? It really, it really is an incredible story. I mean, one of the things that we were talking about before was that you might read a passage about his flight through going over India. Is that right? Would you, would you mind so doing that? It was, the, and you've got to realise um, it's very hard to imagine what it was like for those early aviators in an open cockpit. They had no navigation aids. They had a compass. They were exposed to the weather. Many places my father stopped at, there was no one there that could speak English. And there was a time when he had a forced landing, I think it was, um, oh, it was the fourth day in Syria. And it was so hot and he was motioning for food and they kept running off getting him boiled eggs. So there was, you know, the whole problem of food, where to sleep at night. And many of these places where he landed, some of them had never seen an aeroplane and they would race at the propeller with sticks and try to hit it. They thought it was a massive insect. So on the, on the 10th day, I'm actually at the wrong place, it's here. The 10th day, he um, headed off to India. 
and he flew east to Jodhpur and on to Jansi in northern central India in the face of strong headwinds. He had by now been flying for 11 hours and 40 minutes, but was unable to find the Jansi aerodrome using the directions he had been given by the air ministry in London, who had said it was 10 miles north of the town. It was actually a mile northeast. After circling around in near darkness for about half an hour in the hope of signals, he decided to take pot luck and ended up crashing between two trees in a ploughed field. Kia Ora, that was the name of his plane, which in Maori today means hello, but back then, and actually traditionally, it actually means good luck, and that's what he had named his plane, and he certainly needed it. Kia Ora overturned, smashing the propeller and damaging the rudder. Oscar was hanging upside down in the seat safety straps, listening to petrol dripping out of the rear tank, and he was horrified to see a local approaching with a kerosene lantern. <laughs> the plane was in danger of catching fire. As soon as he freed himself, he plugged up the petrol tank outlets. Other Indians were soon on the scene, and by using sign language, he got, he got them to help him right the plane by removing its wings from one side. The wings were then put back on, and the spare propeller he had bought with him installed. The only spares he took on this whole flight was a spare propeller and two valve springs. And, you know, many of these early aviators had, you know, like 83 spare parts, including, um, a, you know, um, parachutes, whatever. He sat under one wing and waited for daylight. Some of the locals sheltered next to him. None of them could speak English. He was hungry and thirsty but every time he motioned for food or water, they would give him vile, beady cigarettes. He was also cut, bruised, tired and stiff. A couple of his companions must have realised this as suddenly they rolled him over and gave him a vigorous massage, which he said, despite its roughness, really did me a lot of good. At about 4am, it started to rain heavily. The heavens began to teem. Within a few minutes, the ploughed field became a muddy bog and water began rising up the plain. Oscar set out through the mud, at times plunging up to his knees, until he found a relatively dry strip of land about two miles away, and it took several hours for about 50 Indian helpers to tow the plane using a stout rope. He claimed about 100 trees that were in the way had to be cut down. I spent six years in India during the 1970s and travelled through Jansi on several occasions as it is a major intercity hub situated on the main Delhi-Bombay and Delhi-Madras railway lines. If only I had been interested in my father's story then. I could have tracked down some of the Indians who helped him and interviewed them using an interpreter. Some of them would never have seen a plane before at that time. Were they frightened? Was my father's story correct? Were a hundred trees really cut down? How muddy was it? What did they think of my father? What were their impressions? These are the things I would love to know. Thank you. So... Oscar made this extraordinary journey, but he wasn't finished by fly with flying by the time he got to Australia. After that, 
Then he started barnstorming around the world. He did it in, in Australia and in New Zealand, New Zealand and then Africa yep. and then in England and, and all over these pla all, all over the place. But eventually, another, like what, eight years later or something like that, he managed to get a job in New Zealand with what became Air New Zealand later. They, that, oh, I've got it written here somewhere. Tasman I could, Empire that Airways. It's, it's, got, it's an odd acronym, TEAL. Which TEAL, is, Tasman Empire Airways. Yeah. So what set my father off from all, almost all the other aviators, Kingsford Smith, Bert Henkler, Amy Johnson, I mean, most of them died in crashes. And my father was one of the few to survive and carry on into commercial aviation. So he was flying different airlines in England in the 1930s, but was always hankering to come back to Australia, even though he had only spent two years in Australia and was trying to get a flying job here. And then he heard, it took quite a few years to get up, but he heard there was going to be a new service between Australia and New Zealand with the flying boats. So he went and trained to fly the flying boats with Imperial Airways and got the job with Tasman Empire Airways. So there was one plane had already been sent out. Then the Second World War broke out. And just in time, he made the delivery of the second flying boat. I mean, I think it took 18 days to go from England, various stops on the way, these huge, magnificent, like flying ships they were described. And so he delivered the second flying boat to Auckland, which meant they could actually establish Tasman Empire Airways, which is the forerunner of Air New Zealand. And he ended up becoming chief pilot and operations manager. So that was the only first aerial link between England and Australia. But, I mean, they flew these huge flying boats. As you say, I think, I think they weighed 22 tonnes or something like that. They flew them from Rose Bay Rose and Sydney Bay to Auckland and back. But they were flying at about 5,000 mm. feet, between 5,000 and 10,000 feet, which means they were subject to all the weather. Well, they weren't pressurised. So yeah. my father would always give the um, people on board the option, if we can go up high but it's going to be freezing and it's going to be a quicker trip, or you can go down low and it's going to be colder. And they always, no, warmer. They always chose to go up and they'd give them blankets and warm slippers and stuff. But these, these flights took nine hours, like nine to ten hours. And those flying boats weren't really designed to really, you know, cross such a big expanse of water. And they were very, very, very close, close shaves, my father called them. So, you know, at 19, 1947, he resigned. I mean, Air New Zealand paid for me to go over and interview some of these because when the pilots started coming back from Second World War, my father trained them to fly the flying boats. And um, Air New Zealand paid for me to go and interview some of these pilots, and I was absolutely amazed. I mean, they just sort of worshipped him, and I thought this doesn't make sense with the grumpy, mean, miserly father that he became... <laughs> But he actually, you'll have to read the book to find out why he left Teal with a, with a huge grudge. My mother used to call it, he had this huge plank on his shoulder that he took out on us. So it was like his past finally caught up with him. And part of my book was not only to find out why he left, but why he became so better to go back into because he did a lot of damage to us. He was a very damaged man, and it was like by the time he left Teal, and he was very well known then. He was considered one of the greatest pilots in the world, and he turned his back on aviation and never flew a plane again. And I wanted to unpack it and find out 
what had happened to him to make him so cold and, you know, so damaged and so cruel. And I wouldn't say it was therapy. I mean, I did a lot of therapy before writing this book, you know, beating my father up in various therapy rooms. But it gave me a huge, deeper understanding of, especially when I uncovered all that stuff that happened to him in Scotland and yeah. the family breaking up in early 1900s. It was really, my mother was still alive then and I was just ringing her up all the time because we'd been told so many mistruths, you know, and I was digging up all this stuff out of the uh, Orkney archives and Scottish archives and I was ringing mum up all the time. Oh, mum, look what I found. It was just so amazing for us. And it helped us understand why he became the man he didn't. I felt sort of sorry at the end because right towards the end of his life, he regretted turning his back on aviation and being forgotten because through this book and through this research, I discovered he actually was really famous in the 1930s and 40s. And I didn't know that when I was growing up. Like, he never talked to us. He just he became a tomato grower in Tauranga in New Zealand and he didn't talk to us about anything. He just used to order us around because we had to work for him. No one else lasted a day working for my father. It was just mum and us kids. So it was, you know, a real journey of discovery. So quite amazing. And he never... He never I mean, did you know that your father was an aviator when you grew up? Look, the, he did have this camphor laurel chest and we knew we couldn't touch it because it had some of his flying stuff in it. And one of my early memories was a reporter coming up the driveway and he told him to bugger off. So, and I d we had this vague idea, but my mother and her sister used to downplay it all the time and say, look, it wasn't a big thing, <laughs> flying from England to Australia. He was only the fourth, you know. He just likes to big note himself, but they didn't... <laughs> They didn't know the whole story about how extraordinary that flight was when he was so young, so inexperienced. And as Dick Smith said, all the other aviators actually landed at Darwin, but my father got the ruler out and realised the overwater distance to Wyndham was shorter, so he thought, I'm going to fly into Wyndham. And, I mean, he turned up at Wyndham and no-one was expecting him. And he ended up being the very first person to fly over the heart of Australia, and Dick, yeah, Dick Smith pointed that out. So really, really amazing journey. And I think one of the reasons why he did survive was he was such a perfectionist. And my mother used to say he grows tomatoes like he, you know, flew a plane to a perfection. But, you know, he was such a bastard of a father and a bastard of a husband. So quite sad. <laughs> and look... And I love tomatoes. <laughs> And it's a great story. Look, Mary, thank you so much for coming Pleasure. and talking to us. Please put your hands together for thank Mary Carter.